You're listening to The Road Ahead in association with Audi. I'm Robert Bound. Each episode in this series so far has taken us uphill and down dale in various locations around the world, from San Francisco to Scotland, Chiang Mai to Hawaii. For this final instalment, I've put the handbrake on my four-wheeled adventures to give someone else the steering wheel on a road trip-inspired story. Dan Richards is the writer whose books take you to all corners of the globe. He's documented his own adventures in titles such as Climbing Days and Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And for us, he's written Ursa Major, a vivid Kerak-inspired trip through the Cascades where it's rumoured there might be bears. Bears were first mentioned as we approached the Cascades on Highway 99. Weekend yawning, weather set fair, we decided apropos of very little to make a beat pilgrimage. I was in Seattle, Colin was around, we both read On the Road, and were in the same state as the Firewatch cabin Kerouac had manned the summer of 1956. So that Friday night found us driving the route Jack Kerouac had hitched, Seattle, Burlington, Cedro Woolley. The description he later wrote of the journey is windshield filmic, and the dreamy panoramic excitement he relates, the saturated spool of an emerald and scarlet landscape and dusted bronze chimed with our ride too. Kerouac was following the lead of his great friend Gary Schneider, poet, Buddhist, and fire lookout of several seasons experience. When Kerouac's stint on Desolation Peak was confirmed, Schneider wrote him a long and detailed letter explaining what to expect whilst there and watch for en route, on the way in, at the Forest Service HQ at Marble Mount, and once ensconced on his mountaintop. Schneider didn't mention bears. Colin, driving, mentioned bears as we left the main highway and the cascades began to rise on the northeast horizon. The sun was sinking and Mount Baker shone twin peak to my left. Will we need mace, I wonder? Colin asked the car at large, keeping his eyes on the road, his tone level, light. Mace, I repeated blankly. The word meant nothing to me in the moment beyond dried nutmeg. Mace? Bear mace, for the bears, said Colin. He was wearing aviator shades, amber orbs reflecting the lights of passing traffic and the flaring gold of the Appenglow now conflagrating the peaks ahead. Mace for the bears, he said in the way some people say. Now, before we leave, do you have your keys? My mind flew back, some 25 years, to the day my grandfather unveiled a telegraph pole he'd put up in his garden, a 12-foot pole with pegs either side to make rungs. A bear pole, he called it. There at the top was a bun, I remember clambering up it in the red sun, the feel of rough wood on my palms, the smell of creosote close to my face, disregarding splinters, the fact the bun was nailed to the top with one large silvery nail. That day, I indelibly learned two things. My grandfather was a truly amazing man, and that bears, above all, liked buns. No, I don't think so, I said to the car. I don't think the bears would like it. We should be so lucky as to meet a bear, I thought. And there we let it rest for the time being. Colin turned the radio on. Dusk fell, the shades came off, and the dashboard's glow took over the cab. Now the sky was an arrow of broken blues framed in the valley's V. 
Barns and fields were becoming less numerous and route options dwindled, the roads becoming the road. The formerly loaf-like mountains had sharpened huge green brutes, each on the shoulder of the next, the river to our right running faster, whiter, nature taking over, the landscape beginning to bite. In 1927, whilst climbing in Canada, my great-great-uncle urinated on a grizzly bear. In order to unnerve it, he said. The best, indeed only, written account of the incident comes from a letter sent to the London Review of Books by Mr. Jeremy Bernstein of New York. Sir, in my freshman year at Harvard, I was one of at least 200 students to take a general education course in which I.A. Richards was a lecturer. He was one of the best I've ever heard. We also shared an interest in mountaineering. He gave a talk on climbing in the Canadian Rockies, the high point of which was an encounter with a bear. It came into a two-story cabin where Richards was staying and seemed inclined to climb the stairs up which Richard had retreated. Richards said the way he dealt with the bear was to pee on it from the balcony that overlooked the ground floor. The bear, he said, got the message and promptly left the cabin. My father vaguely remembers a version of this story from his childhood. The bear was apparently so disgusted that it left from the cabin immediately, but I imagine the line between so disgusted that it left either alone and so disgusted and outraged that the bear ran up the stairs and ripped him limb from limb was very thin and a replay might not have returned the same result. I thought about this as we drove, my pissed grisly musings soundtracked by the flaming groovies. After Concrete, a town Kerouac pegged as the last in the Skagit Valley with a bank and a 510, the Cascades closed to monster, beastie figures waiting just beyond our beams. We arrived at Marble Mountain pitch darkness. Ahead a gas station blazed fluorescent like a close encounter. By its glare we saw a diner. Dazzled, we slowed and pulled into the lot. A mile before a green sign had announced last services for 74 miles. We hadn't booked anywhere to sleep nor eaten since breakfast. This was the last place to eat and find a room. The Buffalo. We went in. Evening, boys, said the man behind the counter. An old guy with a mass of bristly hair. He was tall and wearing dungarees, just the sort of guy to run a brass tax diner named The Buffalo. You eating? he said. Behind him a grill was sizzling. At his elbow a glass cabinet displayed a vast array of pies. Down the way several tables of silent men were hunched, eating. Roy Orbison was playing, a pretty woman. We'd like to eat, we said. Could he sort us out with a room as well? He could. The guy would do us a deal. He was a deal-making kind of guy. He quoted us a price, then did us a deal on that, knocking a few bucks off. One night, sure, no problem, he had beds. He ran the motel too, he told us, beyond the Archive garage. He'd take us over in a bit, sign here, and this guy would fix up the Wi-Fi as soon as he was done eating. He was the Wi-Fi guy. One of the silent men looked up and nodded. Blindsided by this blunderbuss hospitality, grateful and suddenly dog-tired, we signed and paid. It all sounded very good, particularly the bed bit. Now food, said the owner of the town. Better order quick, boys, because it's 8.45 and at 9 this place is dead. D-E-D. -E dead. Shortly after that, some drinks arrived and then some burgers, too. We'd been pressed to have the burgers. The burgers were good. Damn fine burgers and big. My God, the bristly man could talk. And sell. And we'd been sold. But numb nodding had got us beds and buffalo burgers and possibly Wi-Fi as well. 
Behind Colin's head, a muted Fox News reported that that morning, 24 workers at an Amazon warehouse in New Jersey had been taken to area hospitals after being exposed to bear repellent when a robot punctured a can of aerosol mace. I didn't tell Colin. Next morning, we drove to the Wilderness Information Center, handily located down Ranger Station Road, to sort out backcountry permits and collect a bear canister, a sturdy drum to store food away from our tent so hangry bears wouldn't come a-sniffing at night. Colin asked the ranger if we needed mace. The ranger said probably not. My attitude was to go up there and see what happened. In truth, I'd had no attitude at all until the night before, but now, having slept on it, the idea of pepper spraying a bear appealed no more than when first mooted. In fact, it seemed a surefire way of making an inquisitive bear angry, and an already angry bear apoplectic. So the fact the ranger had said, probably not, felt like a vindication. Colin, I noted, looked unconvinced. I wonder whether he had had a bad bear experience in Vermont or wherever it was he was from. Where was he from? Suddenly self-conscious that I didn't know, I patted him awkwardly on the shoulder. It didn't help. My previous US road trip experiences are confined to two adventures, one short, one epic, both intensely weird. Perhaps I'd have more if I drove myself, but I don't. I am the passenger, and I ride, and I ride, if someone else will drive. A few years before, I'd flown into Los Angeles and been met at LAX by my good friend Anna in a brown Range Rover belonging to her dad, alienly British in the neon underpass of her rivals. The sun had set somewhere over Sacramento, the horizon a smudge of fire above dark earth. LA at night lived up to the hype. It was a great big freeway, myriad ramps, trucks and lights. The roads were a maze of spillway chutes like those of Diablo and Ross, a torrent of cars fluming off each. We drove southeast down 405, the San Diego freeway, six peroxide lanes flashing past in and outs and over the Los Angeles River in its concrete sluice, ghost white and lime dry. When I left England, it had been raining. When I landed in the neo-noir of LA, there was a dry wind blowing, fit to strip paint, and my skin strobed ashen the half hour it took to reach Long Beach. The sky burnt orange, the air was filled with fuel and engines, switching yards snaking silver under tungsten gantries. Everything and everyone rooted elsewhere, peeling away from an automotive city where to be mobile was to be automobile and I imagined the only wildlife to be lizards and nighthawks. LA, newly extruded, thrumming, talky and hot. The oldest things I saw on the drive were fellow motorists. England felt impossibly quaint and far away. Anna is a native Long Beacher and her house was a 50s suburban dream. A craftsman home on an avenue lined with magnolia and jacaranda trees in a neighbourhood set back from Los Coyotes Diagonal. The air was full of sweet pollen. Everything was powdered with blossom. We'd been talking about Kate's Hollywood childhood since leaving LAX, something she spoke about softly, light as bear mace. But anybody who got taken along to meet Harrison Ford on set as a birthday treat had a Hollywood childhood as far as I'm concerned. 
But everyone there is involved with films in some way, she told me. Everyone knew someone, and everyone was working on a screenplay, including Kate. So that was all right. Later on the same trip, I took a flight and series of buses into the heart of Utah. The dry, dead, red dust heart to look for Jurassic raptors only to become marooned in a town called Green River, which wasn't green and appeared as arid as the rest of Emory County. I'd slept fitfully on my buses, waking often, face close to the window to glimpse a town, some lights, striated mountain passes. The city of Provo passed me by, but I was awake for the 15-mile crawl over Soldier Summit. The dawn bloomed vermilion an hour later. Thin fire tipped the sandstone cliffs to my left, a 2,000-foot layer cake of peach and soot. I leaned into the aisle to look down the bus. The road ahead ran dead straight, blacktop on Zerich. At some point, I received a text from my university pal, Katie Cornelli, now a paleontologist at the USU Eastern Prehistoric Museum, to say she'd been held up and could I make my own way down to Hanksville, site of the raptor dig. Sure, I thought gamely, I'll have a go, aware that Katie, like everyone else in the States, assumed that I was driving a car. I wonder how far Hanksville is from Green River. Sixty miles, said my phone. Great, I thought, ideal. When the bus stopped at Green River, everyone else, both of them, hopped into waiting cars. I shouldered my bag and walked up the main road, then a mile further onto a gas station. There were two. I chose the one with an Arby's diner in the direction of Hanksville, but a little questioning revealed that hardly anyone had heard of it. It's not really a place, someone told me. I bought a lousy coffee whilst muzzily spilling cream at it in a doomed attempt to improve its essential evil, I felt a tug on my arm. You a hitchhiker too? asked the tugger. He was a short, beaverish man who smelt like he ate and washed in cigarettes as well as smoking them. The word too immediately struck me as dangerous, not in terms of peril, but association. Where are you headed? I asked him. Vegas, he said. Lucky place. There was a pause. Always be lucky for me, he said. Good, I said. Good luck. I'm trying to get down to Hanksville. It's not really much of a place, you know, he told me and went outside to smoke and tried to get lucky with a truck. An hour later, I had scared a dozen upright citizens with my polite requests for a lift. I was Hugh Grant, stumbled onto the set of No Country for Old Men. Without Anna's L.A. film nouse, I was stuck in a Jurassic parking lot. Lots of folks asked if I was okay. Several even offered me the use of their cells to call for help. I have a phone, I explained. I don't drive, you see. You should have still hired a car, they said. Everyone was incredibly kind and concerned, but nobody gave me a ride. The beaver man was having no luck either, and now sat in a diner cubicle smashing his mobile to bits on a table while swearing high and hissy through his teeth. I took my third horror coffee outside and discovered joy of joys that Katie was on her way. By the time she'd arrived, I'd read up on Utah Raptor, or Super Slasher, as it's charmingly nicknamed, a three-meter-high Jurassic beast with big death-dealing claws and knife-like teeth, one of the most ferocious killers ever to walk the earth, my phone told me. And the desert 60 miles south was full of them. As soon as Katie arrived on the forecourt, I broke cover and jumped into her car to avoid attracting the attention of Super Smasher Beaver Man, and within an hour we'd made it down through Hanksville, 
a town that was almost actually a place if you squinted. An hour after that, we were excavating 200 million-year-old dinosaurs, hitching hell forgotten. In June 1956, en route to Desolation Peak, Kerouac slept on a Santa Barbara beach. Next morning, a sexy blonde in a strapless bathing suit gave him a lift in her Mercury convertible to San Francisco. He later wrote it up as the ride of his life. Back in Marble Mount, having given the duty ranger our planned itinerary and booked ourselves a tent berth atop Desolation, we were headed up the Skagit River to New Halem, an outpost born of the necessity to build dams to slake Seattle's growing thirst for electricity. The first, Gorge Dam, was up and running by 1924, and as we passed the Grand Grey Powerhouse, solid industrial deco, my eyes flicked from the spun water foaming at its feet to the high-rise three-phase lines carrying power off to parts unknown. Colin drove up the canyon to Diablo, through tunnels dug and blasted through the stretched granite of the cliffs. The road was a corridor cut into hemlock firs, so it wasn't possible to see much of the dam, bar the occasional grey flash, until we passed it, when we pulled over to look back from the Diablo Lake Overlook with its picnic benches and pay telescopes. Kerouac's description of the scene carries a sense of looking out through castle ramparts. Here, for the first time, he wrote, he was finally high enough to truly see and appreciate the scale of the Cascades. Dazzles of light to the north revealed Ross Lake's sweep as far as Canada, opening up a view of the Mount Baker National Forest as spectacular as any vista in the Colorado Rockies. We left the car in a lay-by, repacked our bags to include the bear canister, now stuffed with sleeping bags, and walked down a rocky path to Ross Lake. Earlier in the day, we'd phoned ahead to ask about a boat up the lake. The people with a monopoly on boats up the lake had told us that, yes, they could take us on their boat up the lake, and we had agreed a price. Inasmuch as they had told me the price for the boat up the lake, and I'd winced, agreed, hung up, and felt sick. When I'd said I'd cover petrol and stuff since Colin had hired the car, I hadn't envisaged buying shares in a boat. The instructions from the boat people, who I imagine had fur coats and crowns, were to get down to the lake shore and phone them on the lake phone. We found the lake phone easily enough. It was housed in a tin box strapped to a single telegraph pole by the water's edge. Colin stood regarding the Heath Robinson assemblage a moment before opening the box and lifting out a pink receiver. I heard him click the cradle a couple of times, but I was watching his grin grow larger with each development. Above him, a transformer hugged the pole, trailing wires which disappeared down into the lake further on. He held the phone up to his ear and set his features in a furrow to listen for a dial tone. Over Colin's shoulder arched the bony brow and roadway of Ross Dam. Across on the far bank were a line of wooden chalets with a pier in front, whilst behind trees soared sheer into the sky. Meanwhile, Colin had dialed the number and was speaking on the pink phone to one of the boat plutocrats. He then replaced the receiver and told me that they were on their way. I nodded, but it was hard to credit that a normal conversation had taken place, because the lake phone was so jerry-built and madly odd, incongruous as a Narnian lamppost. We waited. A couple of minutes later, I saw a boat curving a lazy arc around a boom line, making for a concrete jetty to our right. When it arrived, we stepped on, shaking hands with the skipper, Malachi. He had a beard and a trucker's cap, and was wearing a plaid shirt. The only way he could have been any more slacker, backwards American boat skipper 
was if his CB radio had been fuzzing Neil Young or Granddaddy. This was our ride. I had cash. Of course it was a cash transaction. You carry all you need or else you don't have it. Nothing was going to come from the sky. No card transactions here. My phone had blipped to no signal somewhere around New Halem and it would stay there for the rest of the trip. Almost as soon as we left the little jetty, the boat had sat firmly down in the water and we flew like a dart. I didn't really talk to Malachi much because he was cabbed up front and the open back where we were was roaring loud with engines, air and water spray and, well, the mountains either side were just there, beastie big. The lake, like the water in a pair of cupped hands, the green flanks rising either side, the mountains opening up and folding out ahead, our churned wakes crossing behind. We hung on happy, buffeted, enthralled, delighted and deafened by thwacking great outboards at our backs. There was snow and glacial ice on the high-cleft summit of Jack Mountain. There were inlets and suspension bridges, cliffs and small beaches along the far shore, the heavens were clear blue, and with the sun bounced up from the fizzing water, we were skimming in a halo of light. Desolation Peak emerged in increments. The boat was tracing the slightest of crescents up the sickle-shaped lake, so the mountains seemed to crane slowly over to watch our approach. Here was the 1,860-metre climb to come. Turning towards a rocky strand overhung with pines, the boat's pitch changed and then we were skating in neutral, shaking hands and jumping off the bow. Malachi backed up, turned, then dwindled, engine noise a hum, then an echo, then gone. And we, having watched him go, turned ourselves and headed up into the trees. We found a faint track and walked it north through pale grass and scorched ferns and fissured scaly bark. It was hot. The air smelt sweet and waxy, slightly oily like old hemp rope. To our left, the open slope fell away to the lake, whilst above us, hidden by waves of forest, rose the peaks. We walked for an hour. Grasshoppers clicked, stones skittered, pine cones splintered underfoot, and our packs began to weigh and our skin began to prickle. Occasionally, the path would descend into lusher, shaded gullies with enthusiastic streams racing down from on high, and the air would freshen and would meet stepping stones and balance pole bridges, but mostly the woods would tinder dry. As the trees grew thicker, the path became a rich and bouncy humus of mossy soil, rotted wood and fallen needles. A tawny road to follow up through ferns, pines and cedars rising straight into vapour, green vaults or a maze of massive pickup sticks. Then the path turned up and away from the lake and we met the big trees. Western reds, ponderosas with trunks several meters across, trees so high that the Pacific silvers below were mere ankle biters and we as good as ants. Here began the gentle switchback slaloms which would steepen and snake us up the mountain for the rest of the day. As we zagged, I began to look more closely at the map given to me by the Marble Mount Ranger and suspect that the line we were following hid or ignored hairpins, so the path was actually twice the length advertised, but we arrived at Starvation Ridge before sunset. The Nahokameen Glacier atop Jack Mountain flashed cold, but there was still warmth in the air and fire in my calves as we pitched our tent in the campsite on the mountain's south shoulder. 
and decanted our food into the bear canister, which I then placed a distance away. Screwing the lid back on, it struck me that it was just the sort of childproof twist cap used to keep toddlers from eating aspirin, only scaled up for bears. So the bears here have mastered regular screw-top lids, I thought. Interesting. I didn't tell Colin. Having set up camp, we set off to see the summit, past boulders and spinnies and into snow, a granular crust on a rise from where we could see the low pyramid roof of the true summit cabin, Carowak's Eerie. It was a wonderful moment. Then we saw a figure, a tall man, walking down from the cabin. He saw us too and waved. We waved back and met on the path a few minutes later. Hello, he said. I was just going out for a stroll around. He hadn't expected to meet anyone. Would we like to come up and see the cabin? He was Jim, the current fire lookout. We followed him up the slope and suddenly the appen glow of the day before was back, flaring hot pink and honeyed. It had been dim in the dip and Jim had looked forbidding as he strode down towards us. I'd had the thought then, the split second after he'd seen us, but before he waved, that here was the watchman to tell us to piss off, piss off back down the mountain. No, you can't see the cabin. But he was all smiles and welcome, and the sun now lit the rounded summit so the belvedere glowed pink and looked, with its window shutters raised all round, a little like Leonardo's whirling sketch of a helicopter. We went in, and Jim set to making us tea telling us about the cabin as he lit the stove and got the kettle going. The late sun cut gold across the panelled room and flamed on the central fire-finding turntable. The washing up drying on top of the fridge, the delicate window frames, the books on the desk and the sleeping bag neatly doubled on the mattress. The huge panorama of the windows, the spectacular mountains all around us, either shadowed blue or saturated red. You could see it all from this glass pagoda on top of the world. You can see right into Canada, Jim gestured with his mug once we were all settled with a drink. It really did feel like a station suitable for pilgrimage. The view was sublime. This was the place to be, and here we were. The sky was filling inky blue. Jim advised us to get back down to our tent before it got properly dark and cold, but invited us back for coffee next morning. We thanked him, bade him good night and descended the four stairs down to the ground. The cold air thumped me in the chest after the warmth of the room. The evening was still and silent, freezing. The little lighthouse, a warm beacon, receded. Jim's shadow stood in the open door. As we walked away, I could feel the frost form and the earth begin to crisp. We crunched back down the dark ridge, delighted at our luck to have met somebody so full of enthusiasm and story, delighted also to be the only people camped on the mountain that night. We went to bed immediately, mainly to warm back up, looking forward to breakfast coffee with Jim. I woke around 1am and sat up. Colin was asleep. Two thoughts occurred in quick succession. Colin is asleep. That noise is not Colin. The noise was a snuffly sniffing, something huffing and shuffling about outside on big, padded feet. A shadow fell across the tent. Colin woke up, sat up, and turned on a torch. Hello, 
he said. What's going on? And that brings us to the end of this series of The Road Ahead. Ursa Major was written by Dan Richards and read by Ben Dilloway. The Road Ahead is made in association with Audi, and soon you'll be able to go on all these adventures in the all-electric Audi e-tron. The series producer was Holly Fisher, the executive producer was Tom Edwards, and the assistant producer was Kieran Banerjee. We hope we've inspired you to jump into your car and hit the highway to have some adventures of your own. Perhaps we'll even see you on the road soon. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for listening.